everyone, Pamela Log here, your host of the Energy Transitions podcast. If you enjoy listening to our bi-weekly podcast, make sure to hit the subscribe button and take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you're listening. This will help us spread the message and connect with our community. Thanks again for listening to the Energy Transitions podcast from Inlet and Friends. District self-balancing. It's a way of coordinating flexible use of electricity loads, distributed generation, and energy storage. Consumption balancing provides an interesting case study of enabling energy communities to come online while providing new avenues of flexible congestion management for utilities. To find out more about district self-balancing and its role in our future energy system, my colleague Yusuf spoke to Simon Anderson, CEO of the Traxxas Group and Chair of Smart Ends Active Buildings and Neighbourhoods Committee. I'm Pamela Log, and you're listening to the Energy Transitions Podcast. So this concept of district self-balancing, DSB, it's not entirely new. Flexibility and balancing mechanisms have been gaining a lot of ground and interest as a way to coordinate the grid in a smart and efficient way. Simon, I'd like to ask you, what about DSB makes it a promising method to really optimize energy consumption? Well, only so many low-carbon technologies, that solar panels, heat pumps, EVs, etc., can be installed without having to strengthen the grid. Now, the standard way of strengthening the grid is to add more copper, make a bigger pipe. And this can be pretty expensive, uh, quite time-consuming and quite disruptive. But the LCTs themselves can also be part of the solution because the flexibility they offer can be organized in such a way that that can manage the peak loads and therefore avoid the level of grid strengthening that's required. So in the short term, we believe that this is potentially possible to offset the requirement to strengthen the grid in every place, every location, right away, and therefore mitigates the problem. And are there any exciting use cases that you know of where DSB is being used? You mentioned some examples there, and I can imagine that people can get quite clever in the way that they go about it. Yeah, um, as you said in the introduction there, this is not particularly new. And the obvious case are microgrids. Microgrids have been pretty standard in quite a few large industrial and commercial settings. And recently, they've started to be used in new build uh, residential settings as well as a means to be able to connect to the grid at a lower cost because of all these with the LCTs, with the heat pumps, etc. So a good example of that is Maiden Hill in Scotland to the south of Glasgow. There, Carla Homes were seeking to build quite a few houses. But at the edge of the scheme, there were 77 houses which needed a new substation and they had heat pumps, EV chargers, solar panels, etc. And the cost of that was going to be in many millions of pounds, which made the whole, well, those 77 homes uneconomic. So Carla Homes got together with Scottish Power Energy Networks, with Aeon Energy Solutions and with a company called Energy Assets. And they built, in effect, a microgrid to control 
the peak load and to curtail it when it got too high. And as a result, they were able to save, I think, something like £5 million off the cost of that connecting to the grid, which meant that the whole estate went ahead. So that's a really good example of what's happening there at the moment. But these are private wire microgrids. So the wiring, the substations, the transformers are all owned by the company who put it in and set it operating, which is great for new build, but it's no good for the 99% of other buildings which are around which have the same sort of problems. Here, we're going to have to find a way to provide the functionality of a microgrid, but using the public wires. And that's really what district self-balancing is all about. There are some other cases around as well, and that is the renewable energy communities I just want to mention. Uh, these are growing in popularity. For example, CleanWatts is a company in Portugal, and they are installing solar panels on what they call an anchor client, which is a large commercial property, which has either a lot of roof space or a lot of land space. You can put solar panels on there, generate in excess of what that property requires, and the excess is then shared in the rural community around. And following a podcast they did last year, they were phoned up, I think, by 170 different companies who were interested in doing this and say, this is something we would really like to do for our community. That, too, is addressing this problem. And what is really interesting about CleanWatts is that they're now thinking about putting in storage, putting in EV chargers and other things like that. And so they're becoming more and more like a district self-balancing proposition. So there's a lot of this starting to happen in Europe, and it's really quite exciting. Thank you for mentioning that. And I want to go back. You mentioned the savings potential that all of this offers, something like £5 million from a private situation. As this becomes more common, what are some of the system efficiency energy savings potentials that it could really offer if utilized to its full potential? Well, I think that's the biggest saving potential is in the huge cost that's going to be required to strengthen the distribution grid. And I particularly the low voltage grid, because there's so much of it. Um, so that's where the big savings come, which is that sort of five millions I was talking about. But to the individual homeowner themselves, there are big savings. So my last company that I founded and set up called Green Energy Options Geo, before I left, we started a trial of 24 homes with a 12 kilowatt hour battery in the homes. Now, these homes were a mixture of different types of homes. I think a few had solar and, and a number of them were social housing as well. And over two years, we used those batteries to store off-peak electricity for use at peak time. That's all. And some of them had solar, as I said, but the majority of them didn't. At the end of that trial, when we analysed it, we found that on average, a 49% bill saving was achieved. And on top of that, there was something similar in the amount of peak load reduction. And I think it was 16 or 17% reduction in the carbon footprint because of the carbon intensity of off-peak electricity. So that's the starting point of some of the savings that can be made. And of course, that has to pay for the equipment itself as well. So it's not quite as rosy as it may sound at the outset. But 
then you can start adding more elements to that. So you can add the solar panels, you can add EV charging, you can have in the future vehicle to grid, um, hot water storage, lots of things like that. And let's not forget about energy efficiency as well, because a lot of the heating really works effectively when you get decent levels of insulation as well. So all of that means I think that it's quite possible to achieve a 50% bill saving um, by doing this, using this approach. Thank you for bringing that back to the end user and how this affects people on the ground. And I want to talk about some of the key players involved in this. When it comes to end users, part of the rationale behind the self-balancing mechanism is creating a grid edge, bottom-up approach to complement congestion challenges. How will this, if again used to its full potential, how will it empower the consumer? How will their position in the energy value chain shift? And do you think their relationship with their DSOs, their distribution operators, do you think that will change as well? Okay, let's uh, start with the end user. So I see a lot of this as what I call, or a number of people are calling, local energy for local people. And actually, let's start with that. That's a really important part. There was another set of trials which went to a conference on, and one of the, about local energy systems. And one of the questions they asked consumers was, what is the confidence? And this was social housing consumers, uh, fuel poor. What was their confidence in the energy system being able to deliver them low-cost energy? And it was abysmally low, something like 2%. And having then been explained what local energy systems were and what they could do, that went up to 38%. So I think there's a really big thing here about actually enabling end users, and that's not just residential, that's small businesses as well, uh, enabling end users to start to get confidence again in the energy system and being able to do things with it. So this is primarily around local generation and storage, as I said. Uh, so it's about maximizing rooftop solar, storing the off-peak electricity for use at peak times. Um, and then optimizing energy usage and sharing that flexibility. And one other thing which I should add in here is about emergency power, because once you've got local storage batteries, then if, heaven forbid, there is a power cut, weather or whatever it is, you have a level of emergency power which can be made available for those local people. So there's lots of benefits to the consumer. You also asked about DSOs and what's the relationship there. Well, actually, I don't think it's going to be changed. The role will mainly remain unchanged. But from their point of view, almost everywhere they look, LCTs are now being installed and creating increased congestion. And their big question is, how do we manage this? I mean, the cost, the priority, and what do we do in the meantime for those at the end of the queue? The guidance in the UK about this is actually quite stark fit a CLS. Uh, I can't remember exactly what a CLS stands for. It's something like customer limitation scheme. So unless they're connected to an active network management system, and that's the DSB scheme, is effectively an active network management scheme. So by putting that in, we expect that such local energy systems will accelerate the uptake of low carbon technologies at the same time as reducing the cost of the grid strengthening. So putting it in shorthand, in the longer term, the new grid will be a mix of copper and silicon, not just copper. 
Okay, thank you for that. And that was going to answer my next question as well about the changing <laughs> relationship with DSO. So that was a really good way to put that. I'd like to bring this around to policy developments in the EU, which have kind of been talk of the town last month. The commission announced a proposal of the electricity market design to reform it. And it marks the first time that end users are accounted for in the market design. To you, what does this really signal about the shift in market and where does DSB fit in? I think it's really great. It's a really great move by the Commission and I hope it gets all the way through the system. And it's probably not right to say it's the first time they've accounted for end users because flexibility has been in the electricity market design for some time. But that's mainly been applied to industrial and commercial customers through aggregators. This is actually directly helping end users by, at the moment, what is called energy sharing. One approach that's being considered by several DSOs at the moment is the centralization of data and control to be able to manage all these LCTs. So that means one system connecting to the millions of LCTs to a bit like a smart meter system to a centralized data system. I think this is going to be an awful lot harder than it sounds and could also give rise to major data security concerns as well as that old, old chestnut interoperability. So here, what we're looking at is the classic thing about how do you break a problem down into smaller parts to give quicker, wider application. And I think that's what this is about. It's about breaking this whole thing down into smaller local energy systems and then linking to those local energy systems. So instead of seeking to directly manage millions of LCTs, the DSOs are interfacing using a, you know, the DERM systems, for example, with thousands of local energy systems instead. Uh, I think that's going to be quite a big shift in the market and a positive shift for everyone. Because remember, what LCTs will do is increase the amount of electricity that's needed to be supplied and generated many times. So there's still going to be a lot of business to go around, a lot to do. This just makes it more simple. You mentioned there that, yes, of course, flexibility has been in the design. It is accounted for. What, in your eyes, are some of the pain points regarding the current design and its proposal that you think need to be addressed? So the starting point really is behind the meter. Um, there we need to integrate the systems. At the moment, so there are a lot of individual technologies that go into the house. They're starting in some cases to be integrated, but you know, heat pumps are dealt separately from EV chargers and the people who install and service them are different and they don't necessarily link up and talk to each other. Solar panels and storage are beginning to come together as well. But really, the whole thing needs to be integrated as a system behind the meter. Then you start thinking about the substation and how do we do a system at that level. And here we're talking probably an awful lot more about data systemization. And here we need to get access to smart meter data and the ability for whoever's holding that smart meter data to be able to adjust the readings for the energy sharing for the flexibility so that the settlement is appropriate. And I think that's quite a large one, that one. They're getting the settlement system working. And part of that is the third point then, 
And that's about elevating retail competition from the consumer to the local energy system agent itself. Because where you, uh, the, you're using multiple energy retailers in an energy system, it becomes a data nightmare adjusting all the figures and so on. Where that's made a whole lot easier is if there is one energy retailer providing a single tariff to that system, which can be optimized to make best use of that. Now, I don't think that's too bad. I think the competition can still be done at that level. And in fact, from the consumer's point of view, it's probably a darn sight more effective and easier to do than trying to work out your switching and what is the best tariff to go on and all the rest of that which goes around at the moment. And finally, I'd like to ask your feelings about how everything has been developing. It feels like for industry stakeholders, speed has long been a key issue that isn't really, things aren't going as fast as they should. And so should the market reform be redesigned? Should something like DSB become more of a real situation? I feel like things will start to speed up in the necessary way. Are you anxious? Are you excited? How are you feeling about how everything has been developing? Or are you simply just awaiting the next announcement to see to see where to go from there on an opinion basis? Yeah, I am excited. I hope you can see that from what I've been saying. I've been part of this sort of movement from uh, what 2015, 16, that sort of time when my particular interest here is about coming at this problem from the end user's perspective, from the consumer's perspective. And yes, we got the Clean Energy for All Directive in 2019. That took some time to get through, but it was a really good signal of where we need to go in Europe. And that's slowly but surely starting to be implemented as we're talking about the renewable energy communities and so on. So, yes, progress is going in the right direction, and that's really interesting to see. I am concerned about the speed of which it goes on. It's all about trials and demonstrations and things like that going on, whereas I actually feel that the technology is there. This is doable now, and it's time that we, our industry, got together and started doing what is possible, the art of the possible. And there are companies out there, we mentioned Clean Watts before, and I'm going to plug them yet again. But they are doing now what needs to be done without having to wait for all the legislation and regulation and everything else to catch up with it. Let's get on and do it because we need to. Well, thank you very much for that, Simon. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And hopefully the next time we speak, there'll be a lot more pace to talk about, if that makes sense. Any, yeah. any closing remarks before we sign off? Yeah, I, just that I think the efforts that Smart Energy Europe have made in this area, I've been part of them, as I said, for quite some time now, but they are having a real impact. And I think that's part of why this is starting to move so much is because as an organisation, they've, they've punched above the weight and are doing really well. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this Energy Transitions podcast, brought to you by Enlit and Friends. Visit enlit.world for more episodes. See you next time.